Well, kinfolk, happy Sunday. <laughs> Beloveds of God, let us pray. Almighty Creator, I pray that the words of my lips and the thoughts and meditations of our minds and hearts will be pleasing and acceptable unto Thee, our guide and our destination. Amen. Well, outside of a small village in northern Japan, a village called Anayoshi, there is a large stone set there out of place. It's about halfway down the hill between the village and the little fishing port where the ships are tied up. It's actually called the Anayoshi Stone, named after the village. And it's an old stone. How old? Nobody knows. Hundreds of years old. But written on it are the indelible words, if you value your lives, you will build no houses below this stone. And so the village is up on the hill above the stone, and then there's agricultural fields and a little fishing port and all of the boats down lower than the stone. Now, it could have been that anybody could have come along and asked, why? Why is it this way? And the people of Aniyoshi would say, well, because the stone says so. You see, the people of Japan follow the religion of Shintoism. In Shintoism, you revere your ancestors, you do what they say. So there isn't a whole lot of room for asking why. Of course, we know in 2011 why, because the answer presented itself. In 2011, there was a tragic, horrifying tsunami that swept up the coast of Japan. And when that wave reached the village of Aniyoshi, it rose, destroyed, and wiped out those docks and the little fishing port, and it destroyed those agricultural fields, and it rose to the level of that rock, kissing it, and then falling back into the sea. Aniyoshi was the only village in their province that did not lose a single home to that tsunami. So then they knew why the stone had been put there. It was put there to protect them by their ancestors. Today I want to talk about the wrath of God, which is okay to talk about in church, I suppose, not as popular today as it was in the past. The wrath of God as consequential and not retributive. The wrath of God as consequential and not retributive. This is what the author of the Proverbs verses that we heard today about wisdom and likewise Jesus Christ, as he teaches us about the Holy Spirit, is attempting to impress upon us that one, the wrath of God is real, and that two, it is consequential and not retributive. To Western ears, when I say things like the wrath of God, oftentimes what they hear is, you sin and then God uh, smites you at a granular level. Uh, God takes pleasure in punishing you for the bad things that you did. Uh, it doesn't really work that way, and that's not how it's laid out in the Bible. Rather, that's retribution. Mm, retribution can't uh, contend with God's grace. No, rather, God's wrath is consequential. It's a consequence of taking some action or choice. This is the frustration a lot of the time with people who are prophets and preachers. Prophets oftentimes have an understanding of these consequences, 
but lack a way to put them in language that makes common sense to the average person. And so they use poetry, prophecy, song, and these sorts of things. Well, I'll give you an example. Ancient Israelites, having fled from bondage, captivity, and slavery, carried nothing with them, brought no heavy packs, did not bring their belongings, wore only the clothes on their back, and they fled across the salt marshes, the southern Red Sea. When the Egyptians came chasing after them with heavy horses and chariots and heavy armor and weapons, they sank into that salt marsh and were destroyed, were unable to escape. They were sucked into the muck and they died. Henceforth, the ancient Hebrew people said, do not place your trust in horses and chariots. They had learned something about horses and chariots that their uh, abusers didn't seem to know. All right, so this is the frustration of prophecy, that there is consequence for action, but it's really hard to convince people that this is the case. I've been trying to do it for 20 years. It doesn't seem to stick a lot of the time. I can tell you it's a fact. It's a fact that if you purchase a handgun and you have a handgun in your home, you are 25 times more likely to be killed by a handgun. That's math. That's not me having a political opinion about guns. That's not an idea. That's mathematics. Now, I own a handgun, right? And so I know that this fact is real. I may as well inscribe it on a piece of wood and hang it above my gun safe for all that would do to change its reality. Perhaps you say, well, 24, 25 times more likely you should purchase another gun to protect yourself from that gun, you know. No, it's ridiculousness, but it's math. It's simple math. The Bible has such math in it all over the place. Don't put your trust in horses and chariots. Jesus says of, just as easily of this firearm thing that I just shared with you, those who take up the sword will die by the sword. You say, oh, does that mean that if you know, I pick up a sword, somebody's going to swoop in and kill me with a sword? No, it's just Jesus saying to you that, look, if you align yourself with the sword and the way of the sword or the gun and the way of the gun, you're dramatically increasing the likelihood that you will be killed by a gun. Now, of course, underlying that fact is that most of those gun deaths are suicides, right? Most of all those handguns do is they just make suicide much more accessible and expedient. But nevertheless, it is so the case that the math works out that way. I think upon wisdom and prophecy that was given to me by my elders, many of whom have passed on now into the cloud of witnesses. I think of my father who told me never put two-cycle gas in a four-cycle engine. I was 18 years old. And I said, why? And he, he did the thing where he looks up and he thinks about how long it's going to take to explain this to his boneheaded teenage son. And he realizes it isn't going to stick anyway. It's probably not worth it. He says, don't do it or you'll ruin your Saturday. <laughs> now, this is this my house. I have this nice little four-cycle engine. It's a little bitty thing made by a Japanese company. It's a four-cycle engine. Um, it's got a little PT, it's kind of like a miniature PTO for a tractor. It spins. You can put all sorts of tools on the end of the thing. You can put a line trimmer on there. You can put a little pole saw. You can put a little rototiller. They even make like a, like a snow blower and a, and a weed, everything that you can imagine. Because they want you to buy the little motor so they'll sell you all this other stuff down the road. Now it has a four cycle engine. I know it has a four cycle engine. It's got four cycle right there on the thing. Suck, squeeze, bang, blow. That's how the four cycles work, you know? Two-cycle engine, you just got bang, blow. There's no suck, squeeze at the beginning. So you don't put oil in there because 
Well, because it'll ruin your Saturday. I don't know what he meant when he said that, but I'll tell you what, a week ago, I ran two-cycle gas through that engine. You know what happened? I ruined my Saturday yesterday, taking the thing apart, trying to get the carburetor cleaned out and the fuel flushed out and it burned dirty. I went out and had to go to two different Home Depots to try to find a spark plug. Uh, that's a whole other story. Still didn't work. I ended up buying another one of the darn things, and I got, so I got, now I got two of them. Great. I had been given that wisdom by my father and failed to follow it, and there were consequences for my actions. So now I think about that four-cycle engine a lot. Sometimes I think about how Jesus tells us not to put our faith in horses and chariots, and a lot of people misinterpret that to mean that we don't, ought not have government. There wasn't really much of a government where Jesus lived, and I don't think that you can compare the modern government to what Jesus experienced, but I do think about that four-cycle engine a lot as a government. Seems like we've got a lot of two-cycle gas going. And what's happening is we have all on our own decided that we have the wisdom of the world at our fingertips and that we ought to do things in a way that makes the most sense to us instead of doing the things that the Bible tells us to do. There are consequences for our choices. Sometimes they're obvious. There's a situation where putting your faith in guns and horses and chariots. Sometimes they're less obvious. Give the land a Sabbath. Give the land a Sabbath. Let your fields lie fallow every fifth year, every year of Jubilee. Well, why? I don't want to let my land lie fallow for a whole year. I could grow grain, make money. You know, I got to pay for my kids to go to college. I don't know, whatever you need the money for. The Bible says, don't do it. And like my sainted father, it seems to say, don't do it or you'll ruin your Saturday. Of course, what happens when we don't allow the fields to lie fallow, the nutrients are leached from the soil by overproduction, the soil turns to dust, and the dust blows away. We experienced a dust bowl in the United States of America for exactly this issue. Would that we listened to the wisdom of people who lived 5,000 years ago, we wouldn't have had a dust bowl. Okay? Likewise, the Bible says, care for widows and orphans. I don't want to care for widow, widows and orphans. Bible says do it. This is wisdom. This is wisdom. 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 Wisdom waits at the end of the journey for the fulfillment of the prophecy that we've been given. When your grandmother tells you, don't put your hand on the stove, you'll burn yourself. And then you put your hand on the stove and burn yourself. You don't say, my God, my grandmother can see the future. She got a crystal ball. No, she can't see the future. She simply understands the way that the universe works. Likewise, God says, of wisdom, of wisdom, of Sophia, Sophia, in the beginning I was there. For God possessed me even before he created the universe. This means these, these established mathematical uh, 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 outcomes were established before the universe was created. It says before the ocean's depths were poured out, before there were fountains overflowing with water, I was there dancing. She was there dancing before God. So the wisdom that is at the very foundation of the universe, the thing that's beneath the thing that we see, was there before the creation of the universe. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. In the King James, it reads, wisdom is justified or vindicated by her children. Wisdom waits for the outcomes that are consequential and not retributive. Not retributive. Another way in which we abandon wisdom 
is to decide that we have possession of the knowledge of good and evil. We see a person, and rather than decide that they are good, bad, or otherwise based on their accomplishments, or their works, or their deeds, we associate them with simply a behavior. For example, I have a tattoo on my arm. It's not a big deal, but I do. But I know some people out there for whom it is a big deal. It's a really big deal. It doesn't matter that I'm a halfway decent church pastor and a good father of three children, or I did good work in this graduate school, or just last week helped some homeless folks out by getting them into an apartment. It doesn't matter. I got a, uh, a tattoo on my arm, so I must be poor and violent or dumb. I don't know. Someone saw me drinking a beer in my yard the other day, sitting there with my shirt off in a rickety old lawn chair. Made up their mind all on their own. They knew exactly what I was like. Why do we do this? It's so unwise. The Bible is so clear that we're not supposed to do this, but yet we do it. We see somebody with sagging jeans or a backwards baseball cap. Or it gets more sinister. We see somebody wearing a hijab. And we decide all on our own. We know what they're about. A visual thing that we then associate with a particular character trait. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the deeds, actions, or quality of that person in question. They did this to Jesus Christ. They did this to the Son of God. They said, look at him, they said. He's a friend of sinners. Sex workers and tax collectors, he eats with his hands and he drinks alcohol. Look at him, they said, and they judged him, contrary to everything that the Bible says. They judged him, but that's not how wisdom works. That's not how wisdom works. She works through our accomplishments and our works and not our associations. And she's been doing this since before the beginning of creation. So... Those stones that warn us about tsunamis. The words of our forefathers saying, don't put two-cycle gas in a four-cycle engine, you'll ruin your Saturday. We're so tempted to say, why? Why? Why support the widows and orphans? Why care for the strangers? Why abandon our nationalism in favor of a patriotism that embraces the human image in every single human being? Why, God, why do these things? The voice from the heavens comes back, do it, or else you'll ruin your Saturday. Wisdom waits at the end of the journey for vindication. The consequences of choices and actions that we make today. And the Bible exists like that stone on that hillside in Japan. Simply say, do, and you will prosper. Do not, and you will suffer. So the work of this week, disciples, is to go out there into the world armed with all of the wisdom of the Bible and do that which the Bible says is good. Specifically, that which Jesus says is good to do. And not over-worry much about whether or not it's uh, common sense or over-worry much about what the payoff will be. But to simply go and do it. Do it for the sake of God. And then God's glory will be made manifest in you and all will see you like a light set upon a hill. That's the work of the week, disciples, to follow wisdom. And I will see you again at the end of it. Amen. Amen.